This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Dystrophic epidermolosis bullosa is a rare genetic disease that affects the skin and other organs. People with the condition have skin that is so fragile that minor trauma can cause blistering and wounds. It's a painful condition and can have fatal consequences. Crystal Biotech is developing a gene therapy delivered as a topical gel for DEB and other skin conditions. We spoke to Krish Krishnan, CEO of Crystal Biotech, about the company's gene therapy platform why it uses the herpes simplex virus as a vector, and how its off-the-shelf gene therapy works. Chris, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. We're going to talk about crystal biotech, the rare skin condition, dystrophic epidermolosis, bullosa, and, and your gene therapy and development to treat the disorder. Let's start with the condition, though. What is it? How rare is it? And how does it manifest itself? And, and how does it progress? Yeah, so dystrophic epidermolosis bullosa is a rare genetic skin disorder um, that affects newborns and children. Um, there is no approved treatment or cure for the disease, and it causes the skin to be extremely fragile, um, such as such that you know blisters and tears. Uh, are caused from minor friction and trauma. Um, in many cases, it is lethal, and a lot of these kids die before they turn 30. Um, the term, they use the term butterfly children to describe these younger patients, um, because the skin is so fragile, um, and as fragile as the wings of a butterfly. Um, it is an inherited, uh, disease, uh, fundamentally caused um, by a lack or a, a missing or a mutated gene called called 7A1, uh, which codes for the protein called 7. And called 7 is a protein that makes, um, that's a simple word, anchoring fibrils uh, that holds your dermis, which is the lower part of your skin, to your upper part, the epidermis, together. Uh, without uh, collagen 7, um, the, the epidermis does not anchor. Uh, and the skin tends to peel off. The, uh, there, may, there are about, my best estimate, 2,500 diagnosed kids in the U.S., in, in North America in general, um, a similar number in Europe, um, just for uh, approximate purposes, um, and a similar number in the Far East, um, in Japan and uh, Taiwan and Australia. And the current standard of care is limited to what they call palliative, palliative treatments, um, such as 
skin grafts, in some cases pain medications, antibiotics, and these treatments cost, uh, this is the cost of maintaining a patient is somewhere between $200,000 and $400,000 per patient. Um, so it is a debilitating disease that affects not just the children, but the families who take care of them, um, involving daily bandaging and unbandaging of these kids. Um, and so for today, there is no approved treatment for the disease. Crystal Biotech has developed a, a gene therapy platform that you call skin-targeted delivery platform or, or START-D. You describe this as a, a skin-optimized gene transfer technology platform. What's the opportunity for genetic dermatological diseases? How broad a market is there? Yeah, so there are many diseases of the skin, um, first caused by mutation of a single gene and many more indications that are caused by missing or mutated uh, multi-gene indications. Um, so if we are, uh, if we're able to show safety and efficacy in our clinical trial, um, it, it does open up the market uh, to treat other monogenic diseases uh, such as ichthyosis, uh, nephetan syndrome, uh, which are all rare diseases, but the platform also then affords us the ability to go towards larger indications such as atopic dermatitis, uh, psoriasis, wound healing, uh, which again, there has been no effective treatment. So the market, uh, while in uh, dystrophic epidermolysis bullosa, uh, is estimated to be about a billion dollars or so, uh, but once the safety and efficacy are established, uh, the platform lends itself to a, a sizable market across many skin indications. We've seen a lot of the early gene therapies focused on delivery to the liver or, or the eye, which are, are relatively easy targets. How difficult a target is the skin? Um, now, traditionally, now, if you think about, you mentioned the eye and the liver, uh, the viruses that are used in those areas uh, do not have the payload capacity to deliver skin genes. Um, the genes of the skin tend to be bigger, um, and it's tough to fit them inside those viruses. Um, our um, we, our platform is based on a herpes simplex virus, HSV-1, that's been modified by us. And it has uh, a lot of properties that are highly suitable for skin diseases. Um, it tends to infect a lot of cells within a vicinity, and so uh, keratinocytes, fibroblasts, um, stem cells uh, are in a localized region are highly infected by the HSV-1 virus, which allows us to get the gene, the missing gene, into as many of skin, uh, skin cells as possible um, in, 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 in a certain um, uh, location. Um, also, this virus that our platform is based on um, is a heavy virus. I mean, it's a big virus and doesn't have too much, uh, it doesn't spread uh, too much um, sideways into other areas of the skin. So it's a highly penetrating, vertically infecting virus that is really amenable for wounds that are localized um, and manifest themselves um, on the surface of the skin, either through blisters or wounds or um, 
exposure um, to, to the outside. So from a dumb perspective, dermatological skin disease perspective, um, this virus is, 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 and it's got, uh, is just an amazing, um, we believe is an amazing backbone to deliver, um, missing genes to treat skin disease. And how is the gene therapy delivered? Is this a, you know, people I think tend to think of gene therapies as one-time administration and, and they're curative. Is this something that's used to treat wounds on an ongoing basis or is this something that's recurrently delivered? Yeah, so uh, to answer your question, this is going to be recurrently delivered, so it is not, um, as they claim, a one-and-done um, treatment. What we do is formulate the virus into a gel uh, to treat open wounds, uh, but we also have an, we also use intradermal injection uh, for diseases that affect intact skin. So we're now proposing uh, to deliver this in two forms. The majority of dystrophic epidermis bullosa patients have open wounds, and so the primary form of treatment there uh, will be a topical gel. Uh, the disease, um, especially in dystrophic epidermis bullosa, as I mentioned, um, is caused by the lack of anchoring fibrils. So when you, when we deliver the gene, uh, the fibrils form and hold the skin together, uh, but Anchoring fibrils have a useful life. Um, they're like your hair follicles. Um, and they, while the strength varies by patient, they, they do tend to fall off or need to be replenished. Um, in some patients over three months, six, nine, um, the frequency of which we will establish in our clinical study. Um, and so the way we think about how the patient will be treated is the gel would be applied, uh, bandaged, uh, maybe in a few weeks, the anchoring fibrils form, and then the patients would revisit the physician, and the dermatologist would determine uh, how much more gel to apply to the wound on an ongoing basis. So it is a chronic application, um, to, uh, but the frequency of which is, is not yet known, uh, but will be established as we go through our clinical studies. One of the challenges with, with gene therapy is that the body's immune system can learn and target the the vectors. Is that not a problem in, in using your gene therapy approach? Um, that's a great question. That's a great question. Um, immunogenicity to HSV-1, which is the virus we're using, uh, we believe is not uh, a limitation in the clinical setting. Uh, since HSV-1 is a human virus, and re-administration of similar recombinant forms has been clinically validated. Um, case in point, um, there is a drug out there called Imligic um, that uh, is by Amgen uh, for melanoma. It's for the treatment of melanoma that has been given weekly to patients over the last uh, three years. So uh, we believe, um, so that's one uh, one thing we can point to, uh, to say, look, it has been given and they continue to see efficacy and point to that, to that until we get to, um, our own clinical data to back that uh, claim up. We also believe that a re-administration of KB103, um, can, does lead to peripheral immune tolerance 
which is a technical term where the body kind of adapts itself to it uh, and making it conducive to uh, repeat administration. Um, and that has been widely, it's been widely published on the concept of peripheral immune tolerance. Um, last but not the least, uh, KB103, we've modified it to be non-replicating, uh, meaning uh, the technical term is it's an episomal virus, so it stays in the nucleus, but it does not replicate, does not integrate into your DNA. And so cell-to-cell infection um, is very, it's not that feasible. And KB103, which is a virus's exposure to the extracellular space, um, is significantly minimized without approach. Um, and as most, as most people know, um, HSV1 hides well, um, in the human body. Um, it does have this protein, uh, this gene called ICP47, um, that prevents, uh, the loading of what they call MSC class 1 molecules, uh, to prevent T cell recognition. So if you think about its inherent properties, the modifications we've made, and the fact that, um, a, a version of this virus has been given to patients over the last two to three years on a weekly basis, we feel pretty confident um, that uh, we should not, we feel pretty confident, uh, but it'll be validated in our clinical studies um, that it should avoid uh, the immune response um, and at the very least express, do what it's supposed to do, express, secrete the protein uh, before such a thing could could uh, manifest You mentioned one of the advantages of using the herpes simplex virus as a, a vector is its ability to, to carry relatively large genetic payloads. That's a, a limiting factor for many other gene therapies. Are you looking at this platform to treat diseases beyond skin diseases? Um, today, we're uh, as a company, we're focused on germ indications. Uh, certain um, diseases of the eye have been proposed to us, uh, but the company to date and for the um, immediate, immediate future over one, two, or three years um, is going to be a dermatological oriented company, um, given uh, given how broad the indication is. Um, and some of our uh, competitors, there's one or two competitors um, in the space. Um, because of this limitation you mentioned, they are forced to take an autologous approach to treating the disease, uh, which involves uh, grafting of, uh, you know, a biopsy of the skin, um, expansion outside, and grafting it back onto the patient, uh, which is, in our opinion, cumbersome, uh, cumbersome and expensive and um, kind of difficult and painful. Um, the so the, the payload capacity of the HSV-1 and its other attributes allows us to develop this off-the-shelf allogeneic approach to treating the disease. And uh, our focus over the immediate uh, term is going to stay with skin disease. Well, let's, let's talk about that point. You, you believe you're the only company developing an off-the-shelf gene therapy product for, for this indication. What's the advantage of doing that? Yeah, I know that's um, so. The way um, it has been, um, people who have you know, um, it has been treated. Um, Stanford uh, developed this procedure, at Stanford University, uh, where in severe limiting cases, 
where a patient is diagnosed with squamous sarcoma, uh, what they have tried to do is take uh, a, a biopsy of the skin from some other part of the body, um, grow it out, um, and then come back and, when I say graft, uh, surgically put it back um, on the skin. Um, besides the failure rate and the difficulty and the expensiveness of such a procedure, um, as I said earlier, uh, it has to be redone over because of the uh, useful life of these fibrils and keratinocytes growing over, uh, has to be redone. So if you think about that, um, and these patients have this issue all over their bodies, not in one location, um, the just the thought of a patient going through this procedure uh, over their lifetime in multiple locations just is inherently cumbersome and super expensive. And a lot of times, too many things have to come together for it to work. So we, our pursuit, I mean, the start of Crystal was to solve this complicated problem. And we tried a variety of other approaches before we settled on HSV1. And if it pans out in the clinic, as it has in the preclinical studies, um, it would make life so easy for these patients. Uh, we're talking about all those autologous procedures um, in lieu of our approach, which is apply the gel, put the bandage on, take it off when you're going to remove it, and in a few weeks the skin should close, the anchoring fibrils should potentially form and hold the skin together. It just makes it so much more convenient, painless, um, and easy to administer uh, compared to some of the alternatives. So okay. that's what we're excited about. We, we also think of gene therapies as being extremely costly. How does having this off-the-shelf approach affect the, the cost of, of the potential therapy? Um, as I mentioned, um, the, today the cost of maintaining a patient is somewhere between 200 and 400. Um, and some of these autologous approaches are probably just as expensive, if not more. Um, we, as a company, are yet to figure out uh, the pricing and uh, of our drug. Um, in terms of what it costs for us to manufacture it, uh, what we, the plan for this company is once hopefully we get great data out of the phase one to a clinical study, we would do um, a cost effectiveness or a pricing study to kind of figure out uh, how we position ourselves in the market. Um, but uh, the current cost of treatment does give us some um, does give us some basis for determining uh, what uh, eventual price point would be, but it's too early for me, Daniel, to talk about uh, pricing or cost effectiveness at this point um, without having really thought through and talked to people and having done a cost effectiveness study. But you are right, gene therapy does tend to be effective um, compared to some of the other medications. And from a, a biological point of view, what exactly is happening when you apply this to a wound? Yeah, so when we apply the gel to an open wound, um, essentially the virus infects 
um, all the cells it comes in contact with, to the best of our knowledge. Um, that includes keratinocytes, which sit on the top layer, fibroblasts, which sit on the bottom layer, out of the top of the dermis, uh, and uh, the virus then enters the nucleus um, in terms of mechanism of action. Um, it does not integrate, so it's, as I said, it's an episomal virus. It stays in the nucleus. Uh, the cell machinery acts on the virus. You know, DNA converts to RNA uh, to, to express the protein, which is called seven. Uh, COL-7 is a secreted protein, so it leaves the cell um, and assembles itself in what is known as the basement membrane, which is between the dermis and the uh, epidermis. So COL-7A1 um, assembles itself between the dermis and the epidermis uh, to form the anchoring uh, fibers. Meanwhile, the virus that stays in the cell uh, dilutes itself or gets eliminated through cell dilution. Um, because it's a non-replicating virus, um, every copy of the virus secretes a certain amount of protein and then is removed from the human body. Um, that is the basis of how it would work um, in a topical gel. And once the fibrils form, as I said, uh, the skin will, should potentially be covered. Uh, the patient would visit the doctor maybe every two months, three months, um, to see how the skin looks, and the dermatologist would determine reapplication on a needed basis. Is there any reason to think there would be benefit in applying this to healthy skin? Um, so today, um, uh, you know, look, you mean prophylactically? Yes, uh, for, for a patient with this disorder. Yeah, so how many wounds to treat at a given point? Um, where else to apply is usually an outcome once the label comes out. Um, you know, we see, you know, the FDA tends to be cautious about viral loading in the human body, uh, no matter, I mean, at least they have been today. And our safety is yet to be established in human clinical studies. Um, that is something... Um, now, I don't, I can't immediately think of a reason to apply it prophylactically, uh, to, uh, to intact skin. Um, but in terms of hey, how many wounds do you treat at a given moment? Is it three? Is it four? Is it two at a time? Uh, will be determined following, uh, once the label gets, uh, once the labeling discussions are done by the FDA. Um, but for intact Skin, our approach, uh, the topical does not lend itself um, to open wounds. So uh, for intact skin, the approach would be an intradermal injection. And what's the clinical path forward here? Um, so we just announced, we started our phase one, two study at Stanford like a couple weeks ago. Uh, that is about a six-patient study, three adults followed by pediatric. Um, that will last and take us through the end of this year, um, at which point uh, we have a couple options, right? We, uh, we share the data with the FDA. Um, one approach, uh, the, the normal approach, is to then get into a pivotal study, uh, which we understand would be like a 10-patient study, uh, which we would commence next year um, with the potential for filing the BLA 
by 2020. Um, that's the um, the normal path uh, based on what we have seen. Um, there are companies that, depending on the safety and efficacy of the phase one data, have made a case to the FDA uh, to start uh, treating this on um, on a compassionate use basis following uh, the phase one clinical trial, um, and therefore. Uh, we do intend to have a similar discussion with the FDA once we have data from our clinical study. Um, and then it remains to be seen uh, what the FDA wants to do. Chris Krishnan, CEO of Crystal Biotech. Chris, thanks so much for your time today. Um, appreciate it. Thanks, thanks so much. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.